Uh, welcome, everyone, to the second week of our transformation intensive discernment and decision-making module. Uh, tonight, um, I will lead us through um, a short Lectio Divina, and I'll remind you of how that's done. And then uh, uh, George Ridgway will share from a little bit from his experience of discernment. And then I have just a little bit of instruction for you and setting up for you the, the work of prayer that you have ahead for you. And we're going to give you the head start to sort of start your homework. I don't know if you remember that from being in school when sometimes it was nice if you could kind of get a jump start on an assignment before you left the classroom. And I hope that that will kind of give you all a little bit of, I don't know, fire and energy uh, to um, start. So a few more people looking for seats. There's one more here. There's several over here. Any other open seats? We'll give everyone a minute to just uh, put their things down. Um, right now, you'll just be listening, as you remember. So um, coffee in your hand might be just fine, but other than that, um, encourage you just to put everything down. And uh, I will begin, I'll read this passage of scripture through, uh, then I'll, I'll pause briefly, and then I'll say just a little bit about the historical context. So for that first reading, just kind of let the words wash over you. Um, don't worry too much about listening for anything in particular, just let them wash over you. Um, and then I'll read it um, again um, with a fairly short pause in between, about a minute, and then I'll prompt you for the last time, and you'll have more like three or four minutes um, to really uh, have a conversation with the Lord, a little conversation with the Lord about what is uh, the, the words that are really um, resonating and penetrating your heart. So let's uh, quiet our hearts and minds. I encourage you maybe to take a deep breath or two as we recall that we are in the presence of our loving God. Who has promised that when we are gathered together in the name of Jesus that there will be a presence that is unique because we are gathered together. And that the Spirit of God has committed himself to the Word of God. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, your light to rest upon our hearing and our pondering and our feeling uh, as we listen to these words of Scripture. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. 
just a word about the historical context. Um, Jeremiah is entering into uh, the history of Israel at a, a pretty dark time and things have gone poorly. And this is a promise that comes through the, through the uh, prophet uh, Jeremiah that God can take what has gone wrong and can begin again. This time as you read, perhaps there's a word, a phrase, or an image that you feel drawn to. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do.
as I read the passage the last time, let the words settle into your heart and mind and lean upon them and upon whatever it is that the Lord has communicated to you. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. As George comes up, if you'd like to make a note in your journal, you can do that and then uh, George will begin. focal range. Yeah, I'm thankful that the potter makes uh, virgins 2.0, 3.0, and whatever, both with Israel and the church and with us. Uh, so today I want to I want to talk a little. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you two personal stories. And then I want to point out two things from the life of Paul. You should pay more to the last part than the first part. Um, the, first, the first story is, um, is a decision I had to make back in the 80s. I went through seminary from 80 to 83. And um, while I was in seminary, I was in South Carolina. I was at a seminary that's famous for training missionaries sent missionaries all over the place, and so the rock stars on campus were missionaries. So if you were going to be cool, there's no place else, I think, on the planet, but if you were going to be cool, you were a, a missionary wannabe. So, um, you know, I had just gotten out of the military for the first time, and I wanted, I thought, yeah, I could do this missionary thing, right? So in South Carolina, University of South Carolina was one of the first places that China started an exchange program with professors. And my wife and I volunteered to be host family uh, for some of the professors. And uh, it was a multi-year thing. And we got really involved with these uh, professors from China. And they were almost all uh, technical, right? My, my degrees in physics, I, we got along really well. I helped them. They could speak English, but their technical English wasn't that good. So they really enjoyed me going over to the lab with them or looking through you know, manuals on how to operate equipment. And after doing this with them, I mean, we got to be very good friends for three years. They said, you should come to China and do this at our monster university you know, with all the people before they go. And um, we thought, wow, you know, this is a real open door for ministry. 
right? And so, and we had been thinking that way a little bit, you know, as we had been talking. And, and so they invited us and we got all excited and we started doing a bunch of things. We started learning some of the language, you know, we, we, we just really got into it. And, uh, and everybody we talked to seemed to say, oh, this is a, you know, because it was, again, it was like 1983. There wasn't a, a lot going on in China. And they were a university in Shanxi province. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. But uh, so we were going to go there. And we were, we were excited. And then things started to fall apart. Um, you know, we were telling everybody we were going. We were making preparations, doing everything. We had two children. Um, and then the Chinese started changing the deal. And, you know, things started getting fluid. And then, you know, we had some personal problems. And just one thing started stacking on top of the other. And I, I really didn't know how to cope with it. Um, and I, I've, I don't think I've ever said this in public before. But the thing, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was I got a call. One day, middle of the day, I was home. I answered the phone. And it was somebody from, let me just say, a, a national intelligence agency. And they asked, is this George Ridgeway? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. They knew, they knew my service number. They knew my military record. They knew, they knew a lot about me. And they said, you're going to China. And I said, yeah, that's the plan. They said, we would like you to come uh, to visit us in Washington, D.C. before you go. <laughs> I was OK till he said that. And then, then he said, because I thought it was like a visa thing, maybe. And, and then he said, um, and we have a story that we'd like you to tell your wife so she doesn't know where you've gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was already starting to get nervous about the China thing. And um, it, one of the, it was a pretty large group of Chinese professors. We were host family only for two of them. But a lot of the other host families had dropped out, so we'd kind of adopted the rest of them. And so we knew each other pretty well. It had been over two years. Uh, and a couple of them came to me and said, don't go. Um, and I already knew half of them, they already thought you worked for an intelligence agency anyway if you went in those years. So when I hung up the phone, I remember standing in the kitchen going, what should I do? And uh, my wife was in the other room. She goes, who was that there? <laughs> <laughs> And I, I remember, I, I really felt like I was at a decision point. I'd say, you know, if I tell a lie here, you know, I've started. So I told her. I told her who it was. And she was like, you're kidding. She knows I'd be a terrible spy. <laughs> 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 but anyway, I, all this is to say, I mean, one thing after another, um, and finally, I just felt I had to pull the plug on this thing. And we'd been moving in this direction for quite, it was basically three years. I'd already finished seminary and I was out, had been out for a year, had even tried to do some fundraising. And, you know, and I was worried about my family, I was worried about my marriage. I was, my, being in submarines, I had done that before this. It was really hard on my marriage. I, you know, I don't know, I'm a crazy person, I guess. I kind of like doing that kind of things. So I pulled the plug on it. And I had made, I remember, I still remember this. I, had, I can remember laying in my bed early on in the process, making a vow to God. 
saying, if you'll open this door to China, I will charge through that baby. You know, probably with that level of arrogance, too. Um, and when, it, when we pulled the plug on that, uh, we really, I mean, it, w w the one counselor I talked to said he called it death of a vision. I think that was a term in those, those days. It was kind of a, and it was. We floundered. We, we didn't know what to do. I worked a number of different jobs. My wife's a nurse. She did this. She did that. I mean, we just lost all direction. And we floundered around literally for years, for years. And, and that's one of the reasons I'm telling this story is you may be in a similar situation. You know, you feel like you're tracking on a path, right? God has opened, right, Paul, a wide and effective door for service. You know, how could I not do this? And I really felt bad. Uh, I felt like I had betrayed God and I had walked past the door he was not only opening but rolling a carpet down for me. Okay, so I'm going to fast forward us. Uh, this is 1999. A lot, a lot of things happened in there. I think probably God made version 2.0 of George, version 3.0, version 4.0. <laughs> and um, I'd, I'd gone back in the Navy. I was a chaplain, and um, I was an exhausted chaplain. I had been out in the Far East with 3rd Marine Division for three years, which was... It was exhausting, you know. I'm I'm not a football player, and they all are. So I was really out of my element. But then I came back, and they assigned me to Marine Corps boot camp, where I was on staff for three years. And it was supposed to be shore duty, but it, it's like going to war, going to Marine Corps boot camp. It's 365 days, seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day. It was really hard. So I was really looking for an easy job, my next job. And in the Navy, for officers, there's somebody called the detailer, and he assigns a job. And I was calling him up, making my little play to get a real quiet job somewhere. And I had I lined up. There's a shipyard on the coast up north that has one chaplain. I was like, that's my job. I want that job. I wanted that so bad. I called him multiple times. He was like, yeah, yeah, we got it. Then my boss showed up in my office one day, and he said, we got a call from the uh, commander of the Persian Gulf Fleet, and they would like you to come and be the fleet chaplain. <laughs> You're supposed to be happy when they tell you something like that. <laughs> I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding. And I, was, I, I, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. I already felt in such des desolation I didn't think I could do any more suicidal counseling. I, I just, I was, I was really beat. And I talked to my wife, and she's a wise woman. She said, well, dear, just pray about it. You know, give it some time, you know. And, uh, and this, is a, this is one time in my life. There have been a couple, but this time is the one that really jumps out at me, that God really came to me and changed me. I had a week to make the decision. And I, there was a, a lot to get done. You have to go and get physically screened and get medical and all that. And so I went and did all that. And all the time I'm praying, oh, you know, Lord, just take it out of my hands, you know. Find something wrong that I can't go. And, no, I flew through with, with flying colors. Um, 
You know, and they kept calling me and telling me more about the job. And the job was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the spotlight was going to get brighter and brighter and brighter. You know, I was essentially going to be the bishop for all the Marines and sailors in the 23 countries surrounding the Persian Gulf. <laughs> so, you know, I did have this desire to do great things for God. But that was version 1.0, okay? George 6.0 was really tired. <laughs> so I did. I prayed. I walked. There's a lot of woods around the marine base, and I walked through the woods and prayed and prayed, and God really changed my heart. And, I, and I, the thing I heard, heard him say to me was, I've been preparing you for this for all your life. You know, do you know any other chaplain that's got your background that should, should go and do this? You know, I will be with you. And he changed my heart. I, in about three days, I completely flip-flopped. I went from being, you're going to have to drag me, you know, to I, I'm excited to go. And it was genuine. It was genuine. And... Uh, so it overrode my desire to rest. Was I still tired? I absolutely was. I really was. And, um, but I went. I stayed there two years. And it was, uh, he sustained me. Do I have scars from those two years? I really do. <laughs> you know, I really do. But when I look back now, that was uh, 99 to 2001. Yeah, right around there. And when I look back on that, to me, I feel like it's some of the best, it was like the pinnacle of the ministry that I had in the military. And I'm, I'm very glad that I went. Um, but it still bothered me about China. And put up this last slide. So, and, and I discovered this in Paul's travels here. And he's, he's worried about the Corinthians and open doors. In 1 Corinthians 16, he writes, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. I keep thinking he's going to say many opportunities, but he says many adversaries. But this is a door Paul went through, right? He stayed there in Ephesus, lots of adversaries. He powered through it, and he had great ministry, right? The second verse up there, 2 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. That was a good, I didn't find this till years later. It was a great comfort to me. An open door that Paul walked by because his spirit told him from within, God's voice within, you know, it told him not to do that. He was looking for Titus, and I think the larger story is that Titus had more information about the Corinthians. He was worried about his church. You know? So I, I take great comfort in that. And for you all, you know, we make decisions every day, and I mean, those were big ones that I remember in detail. I don't remember a lot of the other decisions really well. But I'm really glad I walked by that first door now. You know, I think I, I felt guilty for years. Maybe you've walked by some doors. You know, maybe they just scared you. Maybe that was your spirit within you telling you that it's not the time. 
You know, you need version 6.0 instead of version 1.0 to go through the doors. So, and that's what we're here about for discerning, you know, getting a spiritual baseline in our lives and seeing how that changes in our prayer time. So sometimes it can go either way and, uh, and both be from God, right? Both be from God. Thanks. All right, let me, um, I just have a few things to say to you, um, and then I'll set you up for uh, this coming week. Um, I wanted to bring out just a couple of things from um, the book that also I think that come from some other, uh, another uh, Jesuit whom I really uh, admire. His name is Howard Gray. He actually has a whole uh, like 12-part free series on YouTube, should you care to listen to it. Um, um, but one of the things he stresses and also uh, uh, Mark Thibodeau stresses is that it's not so much about the process of discernment as it is about the person of discernment. And so discernment is not meant to be a mechanical thing where you, um, you, know, you follow all the rules and then bam, you know, the, the way is made for you and you know what decision you're supposed to make. Um, this work that we do involves us as human beings and whom God is shaping um, us to be. Um, the second thing I love is this uh, quote from um, the author that um, of Ignatian intuition. So when this work that we're doing to hone our capacity to notice consolation and desolation within us, he calls that Ignatian intuition. And Summers rise it by saying it's the internal ability to perceive the movements of the two spirits within me. And so this is a great gift to us, whether we're making a large decision or a small decision, that it's become, we become more and more attuned to that sense of, of intuition, of the movement of the Holy Spirit upon us, or the absence of the Spirit, some other spirit, it, it can provide all kinds of guidance for us to make really relatively small course corrections. They're not giant decisions, but course corrections that help us to be more fruitful in our walk with God. Um, and then uh, third, I love Howard Gray says, the discernment is my response to the overtures of God that emerge in my prayer. So really, God is the one that starts the discernment for us. Uh, much more so than us saying, oh, I've come up with six great ideas and um, I'm going to sort of almost have kind of a like uh, more like an attitude of like my magic eight ball, you know, like I'm going to do all these machinations and it's going to tell me the right one, um, where discernment then becomes very mechanical. Uh, instead, this is when you start to notice the constellation in your life and then to respond to the opportunities and the overtures that God has made for us. Um, the chapter that we're moving into um, this week, chapter seven, is divided really into four parts. And what he asks us to do is to um, try to identify where we're at right now. And I think these four steps are very helpful and it's important to know that it's fine to be at any place in these four phases, and not all of us are going to be in the same place. Uh, the first one he says is that we need to get quiet. 
uh, right away he'll say, like, if someone comes to him as a spiritual director and says, hey, I have a big decision to make, uh, I need you to help me do a discernment, he'll say, well, are you, are you praying regularly? You're praying every day or most days? And if they say, no, I'm not really praying, then he'll say, well, you know, let's just start working on that uh, for a while until that gets established, and then we can start talking about discernment. Otherwise, you're really just talking about pros and cons and decision-making, but you're not really talking about discernment per se. So the first question is, uh, you know, do, do I need to get more quiet um, in my life? Um, you, all of you have made some kind of a commitment because of Transformation Intensive to become more quiet, to create some space. Or if you're alumni, maybe you've, you had more of that when you were in Transformation Intensive, and you're feeling kind of this nudge to create more quiet in your life uh, so that you can pray. And that might be, that might be the discernment. <laughs> it's just this call uh, to um, quiet. Um, the second one is, a, is to gather data. And only you know if you're in this place of gathering data. And really, there's two kinds. One are, is, is what I would call an objective, just the practical data. Um, certainly, you know, George and his story, you know, he's talking to people. He's looking at possibilities, you know, such that he, he uh, can tell based on this objective data that he's gathering that the door's open, right? But then when it actually comes to the subjective part of that data, which is also data that we take into consideration that may or may not point in the same direction as the objective um, information. But the data gathering is important. We never make these decisions, big decisions in a vacuum. And then to dream dreams, um, we'll do an exercise this week where he uses a little bit of hyperbole and he's like, Write down 10,000 dreams. Please don't take that literally. You know, that could really keep you busy. But the idea is that many of us have a lot of dreams. And I think sometimes the younger you are, the more dreams you have. And there's an interesting developmental thing, I think, especially when people hit 40 first and they realize, oh, some of those dreams are no longer possible. Um, 50, fewer of those dreams are possible. It's sort of the, the, the options slow down. But then all, there can sometimes be life changes. Suddenly one is an empty nester, and now actually you do have some other, you have some more um, opportunities. So it's not just a simple, like when you're young, you have lots of options and they diminish over time. Um, some doors are not open to you until you have a little wisdom and experience. And then uh, to ponder the dream. So uh, you'll find plenty of information on that, but that's just kind of where we're going. And I just want to give you that freedom to realize you don't have to like work this process to the end to feel like you like did a good job in the discernment module. <laughs> uh, you need to be where you are. Okay. All right, um, so let me um, talk with you actually about, uh, I'm kind of going out of order, but in your green handout, if you uh, turn the page to the second page, Um, this one is actually on the back of the handout. Discerning my dreams. So I created a little chart here for you. Charts help me organize my thoughts. Maybe they'll help you too. Of course, you don't have to do it this way. Um, but after you've read that chapter, uh, maybe pick out two, three, four of the main dreams that are kind of percolating in your mind. Maybe something that's stirring in your heart, something that um, you're just wondering, wow, is the Lord inviting me into a new thing? 
Or is he inviting me deeper into a commitment I've already made? And just do those wor that work of consolation and desolation um, with, with each of those. I think you'll find that a really fun um, exercise. So um, here's an example from my, uh, from my own life. Um, you may not know this, but one of my other jobs is that I teach um, a course or two at a time at College of DuPage, and I love teaching. Uh, I kind of I kind of have to be teaching in some capacity to be a happy person, and it, it took me a long time to figure that out, but it's true. Um, and this last semester, even though I was teaching online, I just really enjoyed my classes, and so I st I've been thinking, you know, maybe it would be fun, maybe for one semester, to actually teach in the classroom again. Uh, I was reading all these papers and discussion boards, and I'm like, oh, it'd be so awesome if we were actually in a classroom together. Um, but that's a big decision, because the way I do it now, it is like streamlined. It doesn't take a whole lot of time. So this would open up a lot more face-to-face -face encounters with students, but it would also take up more time. Um, another thing I'm kind of dreaming about right now, uh, there is a transformation intensive going on in Chicago, but I'm dreaming about like, what would it be like to like really invest in their team and help them to really take their ownership of that transformation intensive to another level. So these are both, they're probably mutually exclusive things. Like I'm probably, and they're both good things, right? But I'm, I'm gonna have to do some work around this to um, really use all of these tools uh, to gather some data, to do the constellation desolation work around it to make a decision. So you may have decisions like this that are just kind of live decisions that you need to make or you could actually be at a stage in your life where uh, I think of like a nursing mother, you're probably not gonna make any big changes, you know? Like, you're just gonna have to keep your nose to the grindstone and just do it. Uh, this is not a big time for you to make decisions, so please don't force this. Um, true, true story, uh, when I did the Ignatian exercises, we, uh, we read a different book and we did one, um, one workshop on it and they tried to, uh, encourage us that this would work with any decision. And the only decision I could really think of at the time had to do with uh, uh, recovering the furniture in my living room. And um, I, <laughs> I tried to apply these principles of consolation and desolation, and it was just a joke. You know, it was like, it just was ridiculous. So you can't force this. You know, if you don't actually have live decisions, because they were like, oh, practice on something little, and then you can use those skills for something big. I'm like... I'm not sure that's really true, you know? Uh, but I hope you have fun with it and it would be a really important thing to process with uh, your listening group or your spiritual director if there is something stirring in your heart. All right, and then the last thing is, uh, if you go back to the previous page, let's take a, a look at um, this exercise where we uh, write out our own principle and foundation. I think you'll find this really meaningful um, part of the chapter, and you may have, you may have done this. It was kind of assigned lightly um, towards the end of the first movement in TI. Um, I don't know that I talked to anyone, maybe one or two people who actually did it. So, like, if you already did it, awesome. You know, like you scratched that off the list or prayed through it again. Um, but the the idea is really to um, come up with a sense of your own personal mission statement. Uh, something that you could also do is to like, 
is there a life verse? You know, do you have a, is there a, a, a verse or two from scripture, a passage of scripture that is like a life verse for you? Uh, there might be, um, or maybe, you know, two, something like that. This would be a good time to revisit that, that kind of thing. Um, so I put up this picture of a squirrel um, in a tree because of a very interesting experience I had a week ago, just as we were starting this, um, this series. And uh, it was a beautiful sunny morning, and um, our, our deck has some uh, sliding glass doors. And across this, the, uh, in the neighbor's yard is this very large, uh, uh, not very well-maintained maple tree that has very, some huge limbs, you know, probably six or seven, like, large limbs, you know, and then the whole canopy is built around it. You know, in the Arboretum, they would have trimmed it, but it's kind of over, overgrown and huge. And uh, my husband, Mark, said, you have got to see this. So he called me into the kitchen, and there were five squirrels playing in this tree, and it was like watching the monkeys at the zoo on a good day. Um, they were like leaping from limb to limb. They were chasing up. They were chasing down. They were all over that tree from top to bottom. And um, I, f I found it very, first of all, just kind of amazing because like I've looked at that tree, you know, 10,000 times and I've never seen five squirrels running around in it. But it seemed to me to be almost like a metaphor of what our principle and foundation is like. Um, you know, what are those main structural things? You know, what are the limbs? You know, you may have lots of foliage around it, uh, but there's so much, those, those squirrels had so much freedom, you know, within that tree. They could actually take some big risks. Um, I'm a little prone to wanting to go on an adventure, you know? And there was something lovely about thinking, you know, there's adventure for those squirrels just right in that tree. Um, one of the things that the author suggests is when you're praying about your principle and foundation, um, you might want to have something really concrete in front of you, like your wedding ring or a photograph of your children. Um, I might want to put my deacon stole there. You know, these, these are all like main limbs that um, give structure to our lives. And there's, there's a lot of freedom within it, but we can eliminate pretty quickly um, some really fun and interesting things if they're outside of that, uh, outside of our foundation, not, not in the tree proper. Um, a few months ago, uh, and it, uh, someone that I know um, <laughs> sent out to a few of us a very interesting job opportunity. And it was to serve as an abbess in a monastery somewhere in like Michigan or something. And you know, like I read that job description and I was like, this is amazing, that would be so cool. You know, and then it's like, oh, but yeah, there's my marriage. <laughs> you know, there, there are those vows I took as a deacon, you know. Um, and, and so even though it was really exciting, I could pretty much eliminate that one right away, you know? So th those dreams are like, they're, they're, they're fine, but it can help us to not get lost in the weeds, especially if you're a creative person where like lots of things, you know, come by your way and interest you, like, it's shiny, I'm, you know, if you're one of those kinds of people. This work on the principle and foundation of our, sort, of, sort of our own personal mission statement, I think can, 
can relieve some of that pressure of like, I need to do something super amazing for God. Um, and to actually believe that I can fulfill all that God has given to me, actually, most likely within what has already been um, uh, provided for me. And it gives us then this incredible sense of purpose within what, uh, what we're already doing. Um, a very common outcome for someone doing the Ignatian exercises is a very um, intensely deepened recommitment to an already existing um, commitment. So um, one of the examples uh, that Howard Gray has is he'll say for someone who's married, maybe you've been married 10, 15, 20 years. When you got married, you didn't really exactly know what you were getting yourself into. Um, and he said for this person going through the exercises, what will come out of this is actually this deep receiving of their marriage. And then it has a global impact on everything. Uh, this can happen with children too. Um, a parent will realize, man, my kids are really way down on the on the on my priority list, and like this is one of the most important things God has given me to do. And then they start making really significant decisions about how they spend their time and how they relate to their children because they they're actually receiving something that's already there at a deeper level. Um, this is what is sometimes called an election. I don't know if you can call find the slide on that. I think it's one maybe one back. Maybe I missed it. Yeah, so I left it out. If you come across the word election in any kind of Ignatian reading, that's when they're talking about um, a, a decision that has a global impact on what you're doing. I mean, I would say the inspiration that I had to make um, uh, the spiritual exercises happen at Church of the Resurrection, it was kind of an election sort of decision. I mean, then I like, you know, when got a certification, did all these kinds of things, and there was all kinds of energy around it, and it really impacted my, 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 my work, um, my understanding of my ministry, the trajectory of certain things. You know, it, it was a pretty big, it was a pretty big um, decision, uh, and it, but it was something I was responding to what the Holy Spirit was doing. Um, Howard Gray says we, what happens when we're making an election is we come to say yes, yes. To something in our lives on a completely different existential level that we've never we've never made before so with that I want to actually turn you loose we'll turn the lights on and we want to give you um, let's see how much time here I want to give you um, 10 minutes to actually get started uh, writing your own um, principle and foundation and then um, I'll just ring a bell and you can head out to your groups and then we'll see you again next week.